0: Hi, Judy Perlman here. We're trying to take Meet the Problem Solvers forward and like everyone else, we're in our home. So um, here we are using new tools and doing our best to continue doing what we've been trying to do for a while now. Uh, right now in this time of COVID-19, it seems more important than ever to get our stories out, to get what needs to be shared, information that's shared, stories and uh, particular experiential pieces Of this pandemic get those stories out share them and pass along ideas for ways that other people that all of us can contribute that's my commitment is to try to keep doing that Um, (laughs) notwithstanding my challenges with technology so I'm going to do I'm going to do a technology thing right now I'm going to actually ask you to let us know what your thoughts and ideas are for future guests you'd like to have us come on Uh, Right here, you'll see that you can either visit our website, meettheproblemsolvers.com. There you can look at and watch or listen previous episodes of of Meet the Problem Solvers. You can also contact us there and send an email with your thoughts and ideas about what COVID-related stories or experts you'd like to have us explore more deeply. You can also email directly at meettheproblemsolvers at gmail.com. We're also pretty active on Facebook, and you can catch us on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. All those places, we are Meet the Problem Solvers. Four words. So without any further ado, I wanna jump into my interview with Caitlin Ferri, an old friend and colleague, colleague, friend. She's been working in homelessness for a while, and um, was, I was very glad and honored that she would have the time to uh, talk with me. I'll be doing stories that are related to homelessness and also some stories that are not related to homelessness. But what we have in Caitlin, as a returning Meet the Problem Solver guest, is really talking about sort of the holistic experience of overseeing and supporting a COVID-19 response as it's being created in the state of Rhode Island. I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll keep watching. I hope you'll tell us how we can be helpful to you with this show thank you hello this is meet the problem solvers i'm judy perlman we are recording remotely because we're all living in our own spaces right now so um, that's what we're doing my guest today is caitlin Ferri she is the executive director of the rhode island coalition for the homeless um, caitlin and i have met of, of years ago and we've been each working in the world of homelessness and our topic tonight is basically homelessness in the age of COVID-19. And um, I would like first to let ask Caitlin to explain what her organization is and where she's plugging into this issue. Welcome, Caitlin.
1: Thank you, Judy. Uh, So as she mentioned, I'm Caitlin from Mary. I'm the executive director of the Rhode Island Coalition for the Homeless. And we're kind of a systems advocacy Coordinating um organization with the mission of preventing and ending homelessness in Rhode Island. So we're a little bit different in that we're not a service provider. So I'm not running a shelter out of my organization, but we partner with all of the nonprofits in our area that do. Um and we work with them to support them and what they need, in addition to um doing advocacy at the State house, advocacy at the federal level, and various systems functions that occur within um, the, the larger homeless system in Rhode Island.
0: One thing I will say is I have seen Caitlin and her team putting out informative, engaging um, emails, basically, I think, every day this week, right? I mean, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Trying very hard to stay in communication and support your local community and pass along resources really cool. I mean, you're doing the work. It, it's a very yeah. funny time. Our world is flooded with resources from the Centers for Disease Control and Housing and Urban Development and Health Care for the Homeless. And trying to keep it all straight is its own challenge.
1: <laughs> yeah, we've tried to be very intentional of kind of meeting a couple different goals. We want to be really transparent. We think that information is power and when you understand something and can clearly see it and it's communicated to you well, that's helpful in these times where there is so much that's uncertain. We've also tried to highlight kind of compassion and people helping people and not to try to highlight just all of the bad in the world, but also the resources, the way to get involved um, and and certainly For people that are struggling with homelessness, housing, or just maybe a lot going on in their life, what are things that will make their day easier? So finding out if the meal site in your community where you would normally get food, um, food pantry, is that open or not? And so having that information accessible for people so that they can then not waste their time and energy going someplace only to be turned away. Um, so we really tried to kind of fit that niche of both being informative, transparent, helpful, and also not a fear monger either. So it's a high wire act certainly, but I have an amazing staff and community that's helping us um, hopefully accomplish that.
0: That's great. I I know from what I know of Rhode Island, you guys already pretty well work together as a community of providers and sort of sectors so was this was learning was getting together with your public health counterparts was that like i don't even know who to call or did you already have a a relationship we
1: definitely have relationships i think one of the challenges that we face and i would imagine is similar anywhere is that things really evolved very quickly so day to day the situation in terms of what the instructions from the government were at a federal level at a state level at a local level we're evolving. And I don't, there's not really, I think we have playbooks for how to deal with pandemics, but this is different in a lot of ways. um, How easily the, the, the virus is communicated and you know, how people haven't experienced this before. So we, I think we knew who to contact and we knew what those relationships were, but it took us a while. And I think we're not even quite there yet of finding roles. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm trying to make sure that we're not duplicating efforts so that we really are coordinating and what that's been for us is really regular daily calls with service providers, daily calls with the state, and then having very clear delineated roles. So trying very much not to have too many cooks in the kitchen, um, and having kind of communication that's centralized. So that was something where we had a couple of, um, it just made a lot of sense to kind of really say, okay, this is your role, this is your role, and it's evolved over time, and I don't mean Mm -hmm. to make it sound like we've got it entirely figured out, but um, it's been very helpful, and I'm supported by a really strong team, so we have Amy Ferguson on our staff, who's kind of our external um, point of contact that's really bringing together the service providers, connecting Mm -hmm. with the state, and really is the point person like nothing goes through or out without on this really without going to her. And then I've tried to That's support great. her with other, other staff and, um, you know, yeah. yeah, just work. Yeah.
0: I mean, I've been giving this a lot of thought too, cause I mean, it's changing every day for everybody, everywhere, yeah. everybody. And I feel like in our world of services for people who are experiencing homelessness, I feel like we're like the canary in the mine shaft that the challenges of the real estate needed to disperse this population itself is like a funding challenge, a real estate acquisition, facilities management piece, an operational challenge. And I mean, the more I think about it and we were talking about it on a HUD call today, I mean, challenges of staffing, people in these programs will be sick. And staff will be getting sick and their family will be getting sick. And so the idea of just kind of how are we, and I I guess my point is, and what's been making me kind of hysterical this week is I feel that we're, our entire society is facing this level of disruption. And we at the edges here, I think that prison system is another place where these tensions are coming up very, very sharply and quickly. The planning is like, we have to be working at this systemic level and it's not happening everywhere. It's not happening yet. And so I'm like, wait a minute, we have to. Yeah, I, I think in particular, when we talk about the, this being at the
1: fray, a lot of it is the, the people that we serve are already so vulnerable, right? Yeah, so people right. experiencing homelessness have shorter life expectancies, uh-huh. um, on average, around 10 to 20 years passing younger than somebody that's housed so that's 49 and a half years is and that's without COVID right so that's an adult in homelessness um versus somebody who isn't right right so already having a shorter lifespan more likely medically compromised high rate of smokers in the homeless system so you're already having people that may already have a cough may already have lung issues so it can be hard to tell what is a cough that's because they have copd and what's a cough because they're infected and are above this virus so that's challenging and then we worry about these large spaces shelters by nature it's not easy to run a shelter on a good day right yeah on a day where everything's working right so then when you have a situation where we're trying to follow protocols for infectious diseases in terms of spacing beds and You know, just the facility, like the organizations are wonderful. They're on it. They're trying to do as best they can. But we're facing shortages of supplies, toilet paper, cleaning supplies, sanitizer, masks, gloves, really all the things that you need. We're we're really struggling to get right now. Um, so that's a big challenge and you mentioned staffing too that most of the shelters in our state we've moved to 24-7 so for individual shelters you might normally under a non-pandemic environment they would be leaving during the day and would go out and maybe look for work or go to their doctor or go to a meal site Um, and they're interacting with the community a lot and that is risking them being exposed to somebody else becoming infected or if somebody's sick, that's hard to do. Um, so I'm happy that we've been able to transition the system to be 24-7 so people don't have to leave. We can bring in food. But then that's just like we're all going to go a little bit stir crazy at home. Imagine you've got a shelter of, of 90 gentlemen that you're trying to um, you know, keep safe and engaged and well for 24 seven and the staffing and the flexibility yeah. and the money that's needed to do that. Yeah. Um, so it's it yeah. can be really challenging.
0: Yeah. And it's really interesting that like, our environment continues to evolve. I mean, I was on a call this afternoon, I wasn't on the call, I was listening to it. And in fact, there had been guidance that came out that said all beds and shelters should be six feet apart. And they clarified that today from the CDC and said, for your non asymptomatic people, they can be three feet apart. So there's that kind of policy adjustment, which is like, okay, you. I mean, all we can do is like be where we are. So if that's what it is now, okay, that's great. We can move things back. But interestingly, encampments, which is a way that homeless people have uh, increasingly been living especially on the West Coast, in basically either large or small groups of people living outdoors in tents, there was a lot of intensity for the last two years of trying to in- to close encampments as, um, you know, real health hazards they are. I mean, I know in one city I was working in, there's a lot of drug sort of getting people hooked, and there's a lot of there's a lot of victimization that happens in encampments. Encampments are not good, but now Hud is saying, you know what? Encampments may be a really important part of keeping people isolated because they're only they're living in their own space. And and this woman from Seattle told a really interesting idea. They're giving people living in tents a two-sided laminated card. One says is green and says I'm all set. The other one is red and says, check on me. So that it's so that as health workers and outreach workers are walking through encampments, that I mean, so all of a sudden it's like received wisdom is turned on its head. But okay, Caitlin, I we don't want to be on this for too long because we both have to go in a million directions. I'll tell you one thing that makes me very, very scared about our work here at the edge is the amount of money it's Going to be taking for us to respond, like to next week's challenge, not to mention next year's challenge. But then, when I think about the disruption that will be happening throughout the economy and the housing instability that's going to happen, recovering and rebuilding. And I'm not going to say that we should rebuild to the homeless system we have now, but just responding to the economic disruption. And we know that low income lower income and unhoused people have the biggest reverberations and the slowest recovery from disruption. It's like, I know you're a big advocate for funding. So tell us, how are you guys helping both like right now, but tell us about the advocacy part, please. And
1: Yeah. So it's a big part of the work, right? So the advocacy that needs to happen is both for resources. So you hit the nail on the head that you need flexible funding both for service providers to be able to operate these programs at this expanded level but then prevention resources if you can keep someone in their home from you know losing it in eviction like that's money real assistance that needs yeah. to happen yeah. and then there's also legislative changes that need to happen so moratorium on evictions moratoriums on eviction fees you know really trying to Um, address how people are served in the programs that exist in these kind of safety net spaces and making sure that they're not discriminating, they're supporting people that they can, that they're accessible um, to the people that need it most. So it's really kind of a two-pronged type of support that we need. And then that's really at a couple of different levels. So there's advocacy that we're doing and that's happening at the federal level um, in terms of what are the stimulus supports that are going to be needed long term to get the economy to do better to support people, the you know there's been a lot of talk about you know universal uh, basic income or some sort of payment to people, and it's not clear to me if that's going to include people just with earned income or people who have none or that are on disability, right. and then how do you get a check to somebody if that does end up being eligible for them when they don't have an address, right? So there are some logistical challenges with that, but we're certainly in support of income supports going to people that need it. And we think people are the best judge of what they need to spend their money on, especially in these crazy times where we really don't know what it's going to look like week to week, day to day. But then also these service providers, you know, we're having to, to blow our budgets because we're, needing to staff up to buy food, to support at this whole other level. And really the hope there is that certainly there's funds that will come through at the federal level, supplemental um, appropriations, but those take months to really get to us. So the immediate thing is really the FEMA support and the challenge there is that FEMA's used to coming after tornadoes and floods and fires and not a pandemic like
0: this. So FEMA is federal emergency management. Administration, yep. I think, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they And then there's a lot bureaucracy of
1: bureaucracy within that, and then yep. everybody's in different. Like there's different levels of disaster emergency that you can be declared, which then turn on different things, and it's yep. it's a part of a bureaucracy that you really only ever understand, and maybe even those in it that don't get it, and I certainly don't. But you don't really have to learn about it until you're in that situation, and then it's a little bit like. Greek, like as I'm trying to understand and educate myself so I can better advocate, I kind of was like, oh, this is how somebody that's housed that's then facing homelessness must feel like when they're trying to enter the homeless system. Like, I know that I need this thing, but then how do I ask for help in a way that I'm going to get it? And oh, this, you know, how do I navigate these complex systems? And then in a moment when you're panicked because you are worried about um, people's safety and people's lives, and you're in this very um, worrisome Pressured. state of world, yeah, yeah. so yeah. it's um yeah. that that's an important piece
0: remind me of one piece one piece of information because I was on a call earlier in the week in the national low income housing coalition, there was a lot of advocacy around whether or not there was going to be housing and or homelessness assistance money in the first congressional. Um, appropriation. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. Can you just clarify whether... It's
1: yeah. So they're working on supplemental appropriations. I believe there was like a $1 billion one that was passed through a, like a day ago. That was not in that. I don't believe. I think that it's didn't in didn't have any
0: housing t- money, right? Did not have... No, money.
1: but I I don't think that was the one that was going to have it. So oh, they're, okay. still, they're still going back on, I think it's like a $3 trillion stimulus. To be fair, I've not looked at the news uh, much this afternoon because I've been on calls, but it's my understanding that they're in discussions for it in this larger stimulus package that's yet to be passed. But even I know like there, this morning there was some news about um, the the Republicans introducing some stuff that I don't know that the... Um, the, the Democratic side of the Senate had been part of. And
0: yeah. so okay.
1: yeah. Yeah. But I know they're fighting. It's a lot of it's over amounts and numbers. And yeah. um
0: amounts and numbers, but I guess I'm coming back to my very simple minded point, which is I don't think there's housing and homelessness money in there. And when I think about the costs right now, right here. Yeah. 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 Wait a second, guys, like this is where is this gonna how Yeah, like, what do you? Yeah, it's.
1: I think. I think it'll be in there. I just don't know if it'll be enough. Yeah. I guess. And who knows? Like I said, my 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 intel is probably older now. But no, it's infuriating and it's terrifying, and I, I think what we've seen California in particular up until now, the increase in the unsheltered, it's gonna feel like a walk in the park. Like we're gonna look back at this time yeah. with a fond memory of, oh, yeah. remember when it was just this was population, just, which is still right. huge and devastating. Yeah. Yeah. It's gonna feel yeah, like,
0: so,
1: yeah. oh, I miss those days, which The is, disruption
0: here is amazing. Right. So right. let's take our final couple of minutes to, to try to generate a couple of takeaways. I mean, I'll throw out a couple if I may, and then you can. I've been listening to some of the people from Seattle talk on a number of different occasions in Seattle and King County actually it's really mostly the county that's driving this. Um, they are at the, they're they're two or three weeks ahead of us. And what they have done is they've really gone to this system level for planning. And so they have they've done some really clever things like they have outsourced a lot of basic routine activities what they they've outsourced they have an organization that can provide up to 1800 meals a day they have another organization they set up an online cleaning supply resupply request system so that you online you order something and then at an out- offsite warehouse they pack it up for you someone from staff drives and gets this package and takes it back so it you don't have any space that you have to be really really st- keeping stuff. And furthermore, you're not really touching people. And it also frees up space for people who are sick and need to be in isolation and quarantine. So outsourcing, food, transportation, cleaning. I just heard the woman from Seattle today talk about they had outsourced like industrial cleaners are coming in. And there's also using data and targeting people. So they are most aggressively cleaning the spaces with the oldest homeless person's frequent frequenting them, whether they're shelters or day programs. So I, my takeaway is I'm just at the beginning of thinking about this. I think we all are, it's all, but try to think upwards in system regional outsourcing ways. That to me is the way we will have the greatest reach and impact on something that's really going to be punishing in any case. That's my turgid screed. And what is your takeaway, take my dear?
1: I mean, I think those are all really wonderful solutions and ones that I'll probably steal or message with staff after this, like, oh, that's a really great idea. So it's, Actually, you know. Actually, the
0: thing th- that I will send to you, a two-page. Yeah. That, yeah. That, thing, that, sort of distilling what they said.
1: Yeah. And I know that they've had, they've been further along in, in some of their um, sooner getting more of Um, some some of the virus really getting infected in their community. Um, So, but yeah, no, I think for us, it's really been, you know, how can we clearly communicate? We're doing some of that. You know, I have staff running around the state, picking up stuff, dropping off stuff. I think the nice thing about Rhode Island is we are a smaller state like at any given point in the state, I'm really an hour away from the furthest part of the state, more or less. Yeah. So it's, a uh, it's about, you know, probably 1,000, 1100 a night that experience homelessness, another in shelter, maybe another 100, 150 that are in encampments or outside or staying in a tent or a parking lot. Um, so it's, a, it's a not as large of a problem, um, in as it is in Seattle, but still one person sleeping outside or one person homeless is too many.
0: Thank you for joining us for Meet the Problem Solvers remote style. We look forward to staying in touch and bringing more important news, more important voices as we make our way forward through the COVID-19 pandemic together. Take care of yourself.